Welcome to the Landmark Apostolic Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and brings impact to your life. Enjoy the message. Everybody, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Love what I feel here today. Spirit of the Lord is real. Melissa got me a new iPad case for my old iPad, so I'm still getting used to it. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou or you art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. And with the Lord's help, I'm going to preach. Get a grip. Look at your neighbor. Tell him, it's time to get a grip, dude. Dude, it. Jesus, thank you for your word that is quick and powerful. And now, illuminated into our hearts and minds, we receive what you want to say to us. And everybody said, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You may be seated, my brothers and sisters. Paul is instructing Timothy how to stay focused on the mission in a world of so many distractions. I think today we're, there's more potential for distraction than ever. And it's not that all people are involved in grotesque sin, but there's more opportunity to just for our minds to be pulled in so many directions. The Bible even says there are many voices in the world, and none of them are without signification. There are always voices talking to us. That's why Jesus had to get away. Even Jesus, someone said, even Jesus had to get away. Even Jesus had to go up into the mountain or wilderness to talk to Almighty God, even though he was fully God. But we know that the flesh of God had to get away because there was always crowds. There was always questions from his disciples, and that's why he came. But he would get overwhelmed at times. But Paul is telling Timothy to avoid, if you look at the context, and it must have been a trap in his day to avoid the trap and deception of chasing a lavish and wealthy lifestyle. He didn't tell him that money was wrong. It's not wrong. We all need money. We all have to make a living. We all have bills to pay. But obviously, he was telling Timothy not to let the leadership that God gave him to go to his head or opportunities that might seem like opportunities that could possibly come his way that could distract him from his calling and his mission. And he's saying to flee the temptation of turning money into your God. I'm sure we can all think of some who have made it their life's mission to make money and more money and then more money on top of that. And again, like I said, there's nothing wrong with money in of itself, but the Bible does warn us about it. He said, instead, pursue things that have eternal value. Follow after righteousness, 
godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Those are the things that are of eternal value. Sounds to me like the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, <laughs> which to me comes before the gifts of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there's no law. And then the gift of the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, gift of faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, interpretation of tongues, diverse kinds of tongues, and they all harmonize. But then the enemy's going to try to steal it from you. So we've got to have our loins girt about with truth, breastplate of righteousness, and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. That's the whole armor of God. So those are the eternal things that take a lifetime of pursuing. But obviously, this is just the earnest of our inheritance, and this is simply a preparation ground for where you and I are going to be together in heaven for an eternity. But when you look at what Paul's telling Timothy, most people today, I suppose, would compare these two realms, the earthly realm, and think because they've often been taught that that's really all there is to it, that this life is it, and we cease to exist. We know that's a lie, but it would look like, oh, he's getting the shorter end of the stick. These people that call themselves Christians, they're, they're really getting the short end of the stick. Perhaps you've had conversations with people that you love, and they're good people, but perhaps they don't walk with the Lord, and maybe they've asked you questions. Well, you church-going people, I hear that you give 10% of your income, and they might shake their head at you and think that you're a part of some sort of cult, or we know that's a lie. We know that's not true. We don't blast people. People are not the problem. We try to instruct and love people, and obviously such were some of us. There were times some of us did not understand that the life of living for God is the greatest way to live, but it's like when we've had a glimpse of heaven, when our eyes are open, can anybody here today remember the moment your eyes were opened to a life for Jesus Christ? Anybody here? You, you can, you can. I see several hands. You remember when the light went on in your head. You remember when suddenly you realized that God was real, and it wasn't just because a preacher said, but it was real in your life. You had an experience with God, and there's the whole gamut of the experience with God, but it's often line upon line, precept upon precept. And one experience with God may not be everything that God has for you. It may not be everything that you need, but God gives us what we know we need in that moment, and he builds on that because it's line upon line, precept upon precept. You know, as humans, sometimes we want it all now. And I know this is something to be totally transparent. The older I get, the more I realize the value of being transparent with wisdom mixed in, of course, hopefully. But, uh, you know, uh, when I was a child, I was always driven. It just seems like I was naturally driven in many ways. I was involved in a lot of sports, and I just, I guess we're always coached to be driven and to win and all of this. Uh, but I'll never forget as a kid in elementary school, my mother uh, was always, you know, building us up, always trying to uh, build up our confidence, if you please, and all that, point out the good points about us. But then I remember one day my mom said, well, you know, Craig, patience is not your positive aspect 
and that stuck with me. And I realized I need to work on that. And uh, I think I'm still that way. I, th- I think I tend to want it all <laughs> and to want it all now. But God doesn't. I think Peter was sort of that way. When you study the way Peter was, he was the impatient disciple. But God used him. But he had to overcome his tendency to want all the answers now, to want all of the victory now. But the Lord says that's not the way faith works. You got to take what God shows you and run with that. We are our lack of faith wants to see everything now or we won't believe. Thomas, it doesn't work that way. You got to take the pieces of the puzzle that God shows you and then build on that. And I think in some ways, a lot of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches were similar, just just they played out in different ways. But to sum up the message that Paul was trying to get across to Timothy, I think here in our text was to get a grip on eternal life. And I know for years that's kind of a little bit of a cliche we throw around, you know, get a grip, dude. Come on, get a grip. And I've had people say that to me all my life for different reasons. And I've said it to others. Maybe some of us have said that to our kids, but we mean, you know, come on, don't don't just float around. Don't be a jellyfish. Have some purpose in your life. Realize, I can't tell you what your purpose is. Of course, for all of us as God's children, all of us have a purpose, and our main purpose in life on this earth, earth <laughs> is to be children of the king. But that's why Paul told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. <laughs> you know, there's good fights and there's bad fights. And he's not saying, obviously, with fists and missiles and grenades. This is a spiritual fight. How many of y'all know we're in spiritual warfare? And there are so many things trying to pull our faith down. And a lot of it's subtle. A lot of it is just trying to wear us out. In fact, the scripture talks about uh, the Antichrist wearing out the saints of the Most High in the last days. But sometimes it's just life. It's not always some demonic spirit somewhere. I'm not one of these guys that believes there's a devil under every bush. I mean, believe me, I believe in spiritual warfare. I definitely believe that there are fallen angels that are demons that are that that work very actively taking out the orders of their commander, Lucifer, to try and destroy humanity. But then there's just life. Not every argument is spiritual. Not every disagreement with your spouse or family member or kids is spiritual. But there's no doubt about it that The enemy has taken all this stuff that he has manifest. Here's something about spiritual warfare we got to realize. That a lot of the stuff we see in the world, whether it be a war somewhere or whether it just be world government trying to put us in chains and slavery so they can control us, all of that didn't start with what we see. It started in the heavenlies. It started spiritually. And I would like to tell you, or I'd like to stand up here and declare that Satan is already in hell, chained to the bottom of hell. Unfortunately, we know he's not been cast into the lake of fire yet. In fact, the Bible talks about him being the God of this world. Just read the book of Job, if you don't believe me, that he has for an unspecified amount of time roamed the earth. But we know he's very subtle. And I would say that Satan is very high tech. Nothing wrong with technology. Most of us in this room are somewhat plugged into technology. Got an iPhone in my pocket. You know what I'm trying to say. Technology's not the problem, but it's the subtleness of the distractions 
of the things that are always trying to get our attention away from what's good in life and especially God. And so don't be a slave to your technology. Let it be a slave to you. Let it serve you. But our ability to stay in the fight is only as good as our grip. <laughs> and I, I obviously talking about our spiritual grip, our emotional grip, our mental grip. But I like to use uh, physical things as uh, allegories or metaphors, if you please. And I think we see that in the Bible because physically, you know how important the grip is. And I speak this as someone who I, I consider myself a reasonably um, strong person. I'm not Iron Man. I, I'm not uh, Lou Ferrigno or any of those guys, but I can hold my own. I can, you know, I can lift a reasonable amount of weight if I need to do something out in the yard or whatever. Um, but there are times that I get frustrated with my grip. <laughs> and there are times I think to myself, I should be able to pick this thing up without any trouble. And I don't know, I, I'm, just, I'm just human. But I did just a little, not a real complex study on this, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist when you realize that the muscles and the tendons and our trapezoids and our deltoids and our lats and our biceps and our triceps and our forearms in and of themselves may be strong. But if you don't have a good grip, if you don't have a good grip in your hands and your fingers, then all of your other strength is limited, if I'm making any sense. <laughs> in other words, your ability to grip is not just in your hands and fingers alone. What I'm trying to say is you can be raised in the truth. You can be in the church, around the church, a part of the church all your life. And that's good. Amen? That's the will of God, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. Those of you that are raising your children in the church and in the ways of God, my hat is off to you in a big way because you're doing what's right. You're going against the flow of the current of culture. You're doing exactly what God wants you to do, and you're wonderful parents for doing that. And I know it's not always easy. <laughs> Trust us. We know it's not easy, but it's way easier than what you have to deal with down the road when you don't give your kids that biblical foundation. So we salute every Sunday school teacher. We salute those who come around here and prepare their classrooms and whatever else when no one else is here and you work hard and you study what you're teaching. But even if you were, come on, you don't need me to tell you this raised around the church, if at some point in your own personal life, as, bl as blessed as it is to be raised in the ways of God, if at some point in your own personal life, you don't make a conscious decision, I am going to live for God. You see, I had to fight for this, and I don't mean physically, <laughs> but as my my mom, my mom and dad know I tell this, okay? I'm like best friends with my parents. We're very close. And they they apologized to me years ago for not raising me in church, even though I wasn't looking for an apology. I wasn't expecting an apology. And we were close then. But 
Uh, at one point, my mom and dad just said, Craig, we're very sorry, and we regret, and we were wrong in not raising you in church. They had a Pentecostal background before I was born, so I won't get into all of that. But I was 15 when I received the Holy Ghost, and I started going on my own. That didn't make me better than anybody else. didn't make me a wonderful person. It was the Lord. It was the grace of God. It was God's ability, and, and, and I just, I've often wondered, Pastor, uh, soberly, what would have happened to me had I not listened to the mercy of God when he came knocking on my heart's door when I was 15 years old in 1986? Had I not listened to God? Had I ignored the voice of God? Had I hardened my heart? Had I said, no, this party lifestyle is too much fun? But you see, it had gotten to the point where it wasn't fun anymore. It was destroying me. I was becoming a teenage alcoholic. Literally, I was. And the Lord came to me when I was at a place of misery. Now, if you had looked at me on the outside, Side, you'd probably think, ah, that's just Craig, you know, he seems like a pretty normal dude, and I had some super cool friends, and I seemed to have a good life in a lot of ways, and I did. A lot of the external stuff was fine, but that wasn't the problem, at least not with me. With me, it was all internal, and I don't know except anything else but the mercy of God and the grace of God that caused a light bulb to go on in my heart and mind. What's missing is the presence of God in my life. My wonderful parents were very hardworking people. They gave us a good life in a good part of town growing up. I had the coolest friends on campus. Everything seemed fine, except on the inside, there was a void. A void. A void. Of the presence of God that wasn't there. And I didn't realize this because I was so smart. I didn't get that good of grades. I mean, I did all right, but I wasn't like a straight-A student. That's not how you realize it. I mean, it's good to be smart. It's good to study. It's good to be intelligent. But that's not where it really happens. When it comes to the things of eternity, there's a moment where the Lord comes walking into your life. And if you miss that, it's dangerous. Now, yes, absolutely, God's merciful. And if you ignore him, he'll come again, and he'll come again. But don't play with that. Don't play Russian roulette with your soul. Because every time we harden our hearts, it becomes more difficult for the Spirit of God to be able to penetrate. And the more layers of sin we allow to build up into our lives, yes, God forgives all sin except the ultimate blasphemy, which is very difficult to commit because those are people that have hardened their heart so much. They hate God and they're fighting against God and all of that. That's what they accused Jesus of, which was a total lie, and that's why they put him on the cross. But hear me today. If you're here, that tells me you've not committed blasphemy. If you are here and you are wondering in your spirit, that tells me you're hungry for God. If you're here for the first time, you're not here by accident, but the Lord is talking to you and he's letting you know, I've watched you all your life. I've watched you. I know what you're going through. I know you can't pay your bills. I know you've been through a divorce. I know that you feel unworthy. I've got good news for you. Nobody in this room earned their salvation. Nobody in this room is saved because we were so good. Nobody in this room got to that place where the Lord said, okay, they've earned it. Nobody can earn it. It's impossible to earn this salvation. We are here by the pure mercy and grace of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Having said all that, you got to make a decision. you got to make a decision. And you know the trap of indecision? is the longer you stay in the valley of decision, the harder it is to make the decision. <laughs> and you're hearing this from somebody 
that, again, to be transparent, there have been times in my life I've struggled to make decisions. So a lot of the little ones that, you know, is kind of pointless to go into, like what kind of cereal to buy. And then the big decisions of what to do with your life. Thankfully, the Lord gave me some direction at a relatively young time in my life. It wasn't easy. And I had to go against, you know, different prescribed ideas that certain family members thought I should be this or I should be that. And most of them mean well, and they want to see you have a good life, and they want to see you be able to make good money and provide for your family, and that's all fine and good. And they may be right in some ways, and it's good to listen to them and their wisdom. But if nothing else, my brothers and sisters, and maybe the Lord's talking to some of our wonderful young people and young adults that get alone with God, seek his face. Even if you think you've got everything planned out, seek the Lord's face and say, Lord, you see I'm doing this, this, and this. I'm going to this college, or I'm training in this area. And the Lord may be having you do those things, but ask God, is this, am I on the right trajectory? Is the direction of my life the way you want it? God, am I missing anything? Show me. And don't try to rush or push God to give you an answer. Because <laughs> you don't always get it in one big, giant package, if you please. But you've got to decide. You will never get to that place if you don't make a decision. I think one of the biggest tricks of the enemy, Pastor, is the enemy keeping us in constant indecision. You know, I don't, I can't tell you what your life is going to be like in 30 years. I mean, the rapture may have happened, but what I'm saying is as long as we are here, you say, well, what do, I, I, I don't know what to do with my life. Look in the Word. Search the Word. Here's the deal. Do what you know is right. There are certain things that are always the right thing to do. It's always right to worship God. It's always right to attend the house of God. <laughs> it's always right to be a lover of the ways of God and his word. It's always right to listen to your pastor when he's teaching and preaching. It's always right to worship when the musicians and praise singers, but it's always right to get alone with God in our homes and wherever else we might do that. It's always right to get a grip. Get a grip. The enemy wants us to buy into this woke garbage that nothing is for certain, that there is no absolute truth. I'm glad I'm in a place among believers who know there is absolute truth in a world of uncertainty. There is absolute truth. <laughs> but you've got to get a grip on eternal life. And I feel strongly in the spirit that God is lovingly talking to some hearts even right now as the word is going forth. The good news is it's a choice. The Lord gave us the ability to choose. The Lord gave us free will. Do you see? In the last two and a half years, they've tried to steal our free will. They've tried to rob us of the ability to choose, and they've used this. The enemy has used all this stuff to try to divide us, and I've been trying to encourage the people of God as I travel. We've got to do what Jesus said and love one another. Even if we don't always agree with each other on this, that, or the other, love each other. There, there, there is something to be said about loving our brothers and sisters, even on stuff we may not see eye to eye on. Those of you that were in the room for the first session, I don't expect everybody to see everything my way on prophecy, but what I do hope is that we can all let 
the Holy Ghost unify us. You see, when they came together in Acts chapter 2, where the Scripture tells us they were in one mind and one accord. That was not a Honda accord, but when they were in one mind and one accord, that word accord there means agreement. They didn't all agree on culture. They didn't all agree on what kind of food they liked. They didn't all agree on color schemes for how to decorate, you know, the temple or whatever, but they came together in one accord for one purpose. What was most important is that is God told us to come here and tarry for the promise of the Father, the comforter that he was going to come to us and fill us with his spirit. We all know God won't force us. God's a gentleman, right? The enemy One of the quickest ways to detect when the enemy is trying to trip you up is he's trying to force something on you because that's not how God works. (laughs) That's not how God works. I believe in laying on of hands. I think we all do, and I've laid hands on thousands of people in my life, (laughs) but I always try to be very cautious with how I do that. And I try to check my own spirit and make sure that they aren't getting this vibe that I'm trying to force something on them. But to the contrary, there is something extremely biblical about the laying on of hands, but we just have to be wise and cautious. Of course, you never know when someone has a neck injury either, but more than just that, some people get creeped out when someone else is in their space. So I think all of us, I don't claim to have this mastered. I just think all of us need to be seeking God, not just for that, but just life and how to move forward in a world that is hypersensitive about all this woke stuff they're trying to shove down our throat. But at the same time, let me say that it's not just, oh, us against the world. We're not of the world. We love not the world, but we're here to be a light to the world. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. I believe as evil as the world is, I believe what we're seeing in our culture today is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. They weren't doing transgender surgeries back then, but at the same time, our world is ripe for harvest. Our world, people are more hungry for God than ever before, and I believe what the Lord said he would do, the latter rain would be greater than the former rain. Hallelujah. People are so hungry for God, we don't need to force them. We never did, we never would, and God never would. I love the way God is in that way, that he doesn't force us, but he does challenge us, and he does present to us our options, but he presents to us what we need to do, and he doesn't water it down, he doesn't hide it, he doesn't pull punches, but it really all comes down to you making up in your own mind. I don't know who the Lord's talking to, But if you're tired of being half in, half out, that is misery, my friend. (laughs) And that's true in life. There's nothing more miserable than being half committed. (laughs) You know, I don't know about you, and uh, to the... um, uh, displeasure of my wonderful, beautiful, wise Proverbs 31 wife, Melissa. Um, she isn't so happy about the fact that I am a coffee freak, and I am, and I'm not going to hide that. But I, I, I tell you, I'll just be honest. I either like it piping hot, like in the winter, or I drink it on ice. You know, because we live in Texas, where it is so hot, you could cook your steak on the sidewalk, and and <laughs> you know. So, but. It reminds me of Revelation. Have you ever have you ever drunk a lukewarm cup of coffee? Oh man, it's disgusting, you know. And 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 but hey, give it to me hot, man, or give it to me ice cold. And the Lord said, "What he say? You know what he said? I would that you were either cold or what 
hot, nothing in between. And maybe that was a metaphor. But what he's saying is this lukewarmness, this half in, half out stuff, stop trying to please that aspect of our carnal nature and just get all the way in. Oh, yeah, every once in a while someone might call you a Bible thumper, but that's all right. That's a compliment. Let it be a feather in your cap. I got past this a long time ago. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but my my friends in the 80s was a crazy time to be alive. And uh, I knew girls who were getting abortions in seventh grade. And uh, God spared me till our wedding day, praise God, only by the grace of God. But I'll say, and I'm not blasting them, that's how the culture was. Girls were getting pregnant at 11 years old. And because that's what happens when you kick the Bible out of the schools like a football and say, no, we can't pray. Oh, we can force evolution down your throat. Oh, we can, you know, do all this other stuff, but no Bible, no God. And uh, that's why Sister Shredwell homeschooled all our kids. And I know not everybody can do that. And those of you that are in public school, be a light. And, and, and make your Bible, make the Bible your number one textbook. I brought it in my Nike bag to every class, and I'd put it on my desk. And so my teachers gave me, gave me kind of the eye. And my biology teacher, who jumped from desk to desk, Mr. Fisher, good guy, smart guy, learned a lot from him. But you couldn't get an A in his class if you didn't embrace macroevolution. And he jumped from desk to desk, eating a banana one day. And he said, I just wanted to show you where you came from. And I just sat there. Of course, I, I'm not the confrontational type, you know. I'm, I'm really not. I'm not the kind of guy to get in your face and argue. But I just had my Bible sitting on the desk. And he looked at me in front of all my other classmates. This was my junior year in high school. And he said, well, that's a mighty complex book there, Craig. And, and I just kind of nodded and, uh, you know, a little bit. And then I brought him back a VHS. Back then, we did VHS. Those were the big old tapes. You know, young people, they were about this big. So don't worry, you didn't miss anything. But that's what we had. And I brought him back a VHS tape of a revival we were in with Richard Hurd. <laughs> he said he watched it. But he said, well, I only watched half of it. It was a little much for me. But I'm saying, you know, you never know who's going to receive what you had. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is a pow- it is the power of God to everyone who believes. This takes me all back to Proverbs 23. Buy the truth and sell it not. We got to grow a backbone in these last days. We got to stop apologizing for what we believe. And I think another trick of the enemy is that, oh, we don't want to be arrogant. Of course we don't want to be arrogant, but where the enemy gets us you got to realize this is arrogance and confidence are polar opposites. They're not the same thing. But the enemy wants to confuse everything, muddy the waters, and take away your confidence because he'll trick your mind into thinking any level of confidence is arrogance. And yes, God hates pride. Of course, we know that's in the Bible. But confidence and arrogance are not the same thing. Now, if it's arrogance, repent of it, get out of your heart, and, and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And, but then what does the Bible say? Does it say he'll leave you in the pit? No, it says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In other words, God, once you repent of all the arrogance, he'll replace the arrogance with confidence. (laughs) Now, if I mess up, I'm going to apologize. If I mess up, I'm going to repent. Even as a 52-year-old man, if I mess up, I'm going to repent and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm not above that. But if I know that I've done the right thing, And I know what I did was pleasing to God. Why apologize for doing the right thing? 
But in this woke mentality that we're faced with, everything is racist nowadays. Everything is, you know, hypersensitive. Don't apologize for what you know is right in the eyes of God. But God created our hands with the ability to grip. And really, it's an amazing science. 26% of the bones in our bodies are in our hands. That's a lot. And I know a lot's in our feet too. But again, it's absolutely amazing how all the muscles, ligaments, tendons, bones, nerves in our shoulders, arms, hands, and fingers work in harmony. And, and, and like I said, you could have strong shoulders, but if you got an injury somewhere in between, and if you've ever hurt your shoulders like I have, it affects your ability to grip. I'm better now, but, and then you think, wow, what if I get hurt and then I can't do my work or I can't do what I'm supposed to do? And we all worry about stuff like that. But let me spiritualize it. What you do for God can indeed, and, and I, I, believe, I believe the Lord wants us to really think about this because in the church, I know, I mean, I don't have all the answers, but I know God's people wrestle with significance, especially we men. We wrestle with significance. In fact, most men, our significance is tied to our work. <laughs> and that's, that's just the way it is. That's just reality. And that's not bad because God made us to be workers. But what you do for God can have a positive effect, even if you don't think it's related because we are all connected by his spirit. But you see, we want the spotlight. We want to be seen. We want the credit. But the Lord said there's a greater reward who do their alms in secret. <laughs> Where are those who are willing to work for God when nobody's watching? Most of the work for God that goes on is not up here, and, and, and this is very important. I know we're saved by preaching, and what the musicians and praise singers do is important. What the teachers do is vital. Amen. But all the other stuff that happens on a daily basis, pastor can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would argue that most of the work he does as a pastor really isn't in this pulpit. I mean, the preaching is vital, absolutely vital. But all the other stuff that he does, and, and the first lady as well, in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, God called Moses to challenge Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go. And you know what, Moses? He didn't think he was qualified. Have you ever had the Lord nudge you, talk to your heart about doing something, and your first response is, I am not qualified to do that? <laughs> I have. I've never really felt totally qualified as an evangelist, but... I know that if I don't, I'll be in direct disobedience to God. That's <laughs> what he called me to do. But I'm, I'm not the greatest. Moses felt so inadequate for so many reasons. But every excuse, when you study the dialogue, when you just read the dialogue between Moses, wouldn't you like to be able to talk to God that way, the way Moses talked to God? It's amazing. Face-to-face -face as a man. But every excuse that Moses gave God was refused. It was do or die. And we've probably all done that. We've probably all given God excuses. I've been guilty of it. But Moses was afraid that the people wouldn't believe him. Now, this is key. He was afraid that the people wouldn't 
believe him when he said the Lord appeared to him. Now, at first, when you first look at that, you might think, oh, he means Pharaoh and and Pharaoh's people. No, I think when you take a closer look at it, he means the people of God, the children of Israel, because they struggled whether or not to follow Moses. Moses was a man. Moses had anger issues. but he was called of God, and God chose him. God doesn't always choose the person you think he should, (laughs) but God never makes mistakes. You see, we, we get our eyes on nitpicking the way we think things should be. (laughs) Well, if you think you could do it better, go for it, but most of us can't because there's no better way than God's plan. But Moses was afraid, and I can understand why Moses was afraid. So God solved this dilemma in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 2 by asking Moses, what's in your hand? We want God to give us some massive answer that's way out here. God, if I just had a PhD, if I could just take some more college classes, and that's fine and great and nice. Oh, if I could just be like that guy. Let me tell you something that really helped me. When I was younger, in my teens and even into my early 20s, I was always trying to be like somebody else. Another transparency moment. And I'd hear these amazing preachers, and I'd try to preach like them and sound like them. And one day, the Lord convicted my heart of that. But this went back B.C. So it was sort of in my nature. I guess I I could be an impressionist. (laughs) I guess, maybe. I don't know. It's just kind of in my personality, sort of. But I never realized that. But one day the Lord convicted my heart and said, Craig, don't try to be like so-and-so. Yeah, I know they're amazing, but stop. Learn from them, but stop trying to be like them. And let me just say, even, even as a saved child of God, I didn't have complete peace in my heart until the Lord dealt with my heart about this. And when I found myself... See, you can't find yourself until you find Jesus. But once you have that solid relationship with Jesus, then you really find out who you are as his child. And once I became comfortable in my own skin, if you please, I had peace. And the Lord wants to do that for some here today. Stop chasing somebody else. Stop thinking the grass is greener on the other side. And he said, Mo, what's in your hand? And he said, it's just a rod. He said, okay. Notice Moses was already holding the rod. He was already holding it. What's in your hand? God didn't say, what don't you have that you should have? God said, Moses, what do you have? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. Cast it on the ground, and you know what happened. It became a serpent. Now, here's the thing. I don't know what Moses, Moses freaked out or what happened. Maybe he was just really like, what on earth? Sounds crazy. But then the Lord said, what's even crazier is he said, grab it by the tail. Now, look, I'm not a snake expert, but I had a couple as a kid for pets. And and especially those were non-venomous. One of them bit me in the neck, but those were non-venomous. But I know this. If it, especially a venomous snake, you never grab it by the tail. That's the last place 
Just look it up on YouTube. No. <laughs> snake experts that know how to handle snakes. No, thank you. No, thanks. Are you those people that handle snakes? No, it's not us. That's the other people down the road. That's not us. <laughs> None of that in Sparta. But God was telling Moses to get a grip on the snake. Maybe he was telling him to grab his greatest fear by the tail. And, of course, it became a rod again. Now, think about how cool that must have been when Moses suddenly realized, cast it down, snake, pick it up, rod. Oh, no, but, but I'm not calling you to be a magician. I'm not calling you to be Houdini. And this isn't to impress. This isn't for a show. It's for a purpose. How many of you know God doesn't have to prove himself to us? But I'm going to get rid of your anxiety and your fear that is preventing you from doing what I've called you to do. Hallelujah. It is time to get a grip on the kingdom of Jesus Christ like we never have in our lives. Imagine the level of grip that is required for free climbers. Think about this for just a second. People who climb cliffs and rocks without any ropes or harnesses. And there's a guy, most of you have probably heard of him, Alex Honolder, Honolder, however you say his name, you can look him up. They did a whole documentary about the guy. Won't go into all the details, except in 2008, he became the first free climber to free solo the famous Half Dome in Yosemite. Now, here's the thing about Half Dome. It is 8,846 feet straight up. And we're talking, and so I watched this little documentary where they interviewed the producer, the top producer, and he said, our biggest question was, is this even ethical to film this guy? Because what if while, we, and they had to hire a whole bunch of professional rock climbers to be the camera people, professional rock climbers. They had to train them how to uh, do filmography. They had to be there on the rock, but their biggest fear, their biggest question was, he said, is it even right? Is it even ethical to film a guy? We could be the ones that film him falling to his death. What kind of grip is required? And I listened to this Alex Climber dude give a TED talk, and he talks about how he, he said, you know, people assume that I have no fear. He said, that's not true. He said, my secret to doing this was practice, 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 practice. He said, I climbed Half Dome and some other rock he was talking about like over 200 times, one of them 50 times, whatever. He said, I did it over and over and over again with ropes, with harnesses. He said, I memorized every step, every place I would grab. He said, I memorized every crevice. And he said, he said, I had a lot of fear when I had ropes on. He said, but the day came to do it with no ropes. He said, it, it took him almost four hours to climb straight up with no ropes. One slip, you're dead. And he said, I'm just telling you what he said. He said, I did the entire four-hour climb and felt zero fear. But he said, you know why? Because I had all those steps and moves memorized. And some of them were very, very difficult. Here's the thing. All the things you've been through, all the battles you've been through to get to where you are. Because I know 
If you've been in the church of the living God for any length of time, you've been through some trials, you've been through some tests, the enemy's tried to, to trip you up. None of that is in vain because every time you face a temptation or difficulty in any way, shape, or form, it makes you stronger. We don't get stronger on the couch eating potato chips, and we all probably do that, but we get stronger during the times of trial and challenge and difficulty. And none of us like it. But as the musicians come, the higher we go, the more we must hold on with a grip that is determined to never let go. So I say to all of us, not just our young people and young adults, but I say to all of us, as we know time is short, as we know what the Bible says, the closer we get to the rapture of the church, the enemy is going to unleash his fury in the world. We must keep our focus. We must keep our grip on what is right, on what is true, our grip on the things of God, our grip in the love of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us, in everything give thanks. This is also key, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is where he said, quench not the spirit. He said, despise not prophesying. And then here's what he said in verse 21. Prove all things. Hold fast. Hold fast that which is good. And we know that holding fast means to get a grip. Hallelujah. I am not here by my own strength. I am not here by my own might nor by my own power, and neither are you. But by my spirit, says the Lord. But where many people don't totally understand or realize Victory only comes when we decide in our hearts and minds that I am going to hold on to the hand of Jesus until it's all over. I'm not going to let go. In other words, his mercy extended in our direction, but we could have rejected it. You could have said no. You could have said I'm not interested. You could have said I don't need God. I'm independent. I'm successful on my own. But then, as the king of Bible studies, Merle Cornwell, said, most people come to God in a time of crisis. And if we'll be honest, most of us probably came to the Lord during a time of uncertainty and fear. Here's the good news. The Lord's not going to leave you there. And he's going to lift you up. He's going to wrap his arms of mercy and grace around you. And he's going to help you understand his love for you is unconditional. Stand with me today. I know the Lord's here. And I know he wants to minister to every heart. And perhaps you're going through a difficult time in your life. No one's here to judge you because we've all been there. We've all felt like we didn't measure up. We've all felt like we were failures. Let me tell you, you are not a failure. God has not rejected you. In fact, you wouldn't even be here if that was the case. <laughs> because God's love for us is constant. How many of y'all know that? I sense the Spirit of the Lord is here to heal somebody from the inside out. 
Perhaps you live with depression and anxiety, which are often very closely, closely related, and you don't even know why. And it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. You've had a hard time finding your purpose in life. God understands. He's been there. We have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we are. Nobody felt more alone than Jesus on the cross. Jesus felt completely forsaken on that cross. He knows exactly how you feel. And the Lord is here to wrap his arms of love and grace around you and pull you toward himself. And I promise you, you will be better than before. You will sense hope and strength in your life. God's grace is abundant in this place. This is a spiritual hospital, not a courtroom. I want to open up this front altar area. I wonder whether it be in these altars or in our seats somewhere in this sanctuary. Can we find a place? Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those that give generously to this ministry. If you would like more information, please visit our website at landmarkapostolicchurch.net. But have a great day and God bless.